of Romans chapter 1. We continue uh, moving verse by verse through this book. Romans in general is, is so sweet and so glorious. There's so much that is precious here. I, I know that this particular section is hard. And it's not hard because it's hard to understand. This, this particular portion of Scripture we're in is very easy to understand. It's just hard because it's all about our own sinfulness. And so it's hard to accept. Our, our hearts, our, our pride doesn't like to hear what's in these verses. And so we need to pray that God would give us grace to accept what's here. Um, this morning we moved into this new section in the book of Romans. And it's a large one. It begins in chapter 1, verse 18. And goes through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, if you'll remember, we said that this particular section of Romans is answering the why question, right? Romans 1, 16. If you all have it all memorized, it's such an important verse. Romans 1, 16 is the point of the book of Romans. God is powerful to save through the gospel. That in the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the message of Christ crucified, believing that message, people are saved. Verse 17 of chapter 1 is the how question. How does hearing and believing the gospel save? Answer, we are unrighteous before God. But when we believe on Christ, God brings the righteousness we need to us. He takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and credits us to us. The heart of the gospel is the great exchange. God looks upon us as though we were Christ, as if we were righteous, and He blesses us as if we were righteous. And when He looked upon Christ at the cross, He credited to Christ all our sin, all our wickedness, and treated Jesus the way we deserve to be treated. That's the message of the gospel. Well, now we get into this big section of why we need the gospel why we need to be saved. Um, let me show you something I didn't show you this morning in this section. Uh, I told you the main point of this section is all people stand guilty before a holy God. All people are sinners. And God, because He's good and holy, is against sin. And therefore we stand in danger of judgment. But let me show you how Paul does this. In Romans 1, 18 through the end of chapter 1, his focus is mainly on Gentiles, non-Jews. And, and the way we know that, even though he, he is talking about all people, we know he's talking mainly about Gentiles because of the kinds of sins that he mentions. For example, homosexuality. Homosexuality was a, a very common sin in the Greco-Roman culture of the day. Non-Jews, it was rampant among them. It was not rampant among the Jews. It was considered abhorrent among the Jews. And so the kinds of sins that Paul mentions in Romans 1 are, are mainly the sins that are found among the pagans, right? Bowing down to images in the shape of humans and animals. Jews didn't do that. Gentiles did. And so in, in reading the, this part of Romans 1, you can almost hear Jews, Jewish Christians, listening to Paul and saying, Amen! You tell those Gentiles, Paul. Right? They've been living immorally. God's judgment is upon them. They are away from God. You tell them, Paul. Amen. And then all of a sudden in Romans 2, Paul turns the tables on them and says, Aha! 
And you too, Jews, are just as guilty before God as the Gentiles. Yes, you're the children of Abraham. Yes, you have the law. But that, even that, will not save you. You are guilty before God. And then in Romans chapter 3, he drives the point home, quoting verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. Gentiles, Jews, poor, rich, black, white, American, European, Asian, African, all are guilty before God. That's the main point of this section. Now, the first argument he makes, we saw it this morning, is namely that at this very moment, even as we live on this earth, God's holy anger against sin is being revealed. And we talked about all the many ways that even today, God's anger, His good anger against our sin is being shown in this world. But a question we might ask is this. When Paul looks around at tornadoes and hurricanes, at diseases and viruses, at the degradation of human society, at all of this evil and suffering in the world, why does he have this interpretation? Why does he say the reason there's all of this stuff in the world is to show God's anger against our sin? Why does he say that? I mean, maybe the reason for natural disasters... Maybe the reason for suffering and pain isn't that man is evil. Maybe it's that God is evil. Maybe it's that God is an unjust God. Maybe we're not to blame, that God has done all this and He's the one to blame. Well, the second argument Paul now makes is no. God is just in His anger towards man. Paul's second argument is that God is not treating man unfairly. Paul's second argument is that we have no excuse that we can point to in order to escape judgment. We are inexcusably under His wrath. God's anger against our sin is a righteous anger. I've said it many times, and now it's the very point that Paul is making in these verses. God does not judge us because He is wicked. He judges us because He is good, and we are wicked. Paul's argument in verses 18 through 20, that's our focus, 18, 19, and 20. Paul's argument has three parts. Let me read uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20 first. Beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... They are without excuse. You need to know that the Bible often speaks in logical arguments. <laughs> the Bible reasons with us. 
you want to understand the Bible, you need to know that the prophets and the apostles in particular, but throughout the scriptures, God reasons with us. He calls us to use our minds and and he presents arguments. It's one of the ways we begin to see the wisdom of God. So I want you to see if you can follow the argument, the logical argument that God is making in verses 18, 19, and 20. Part one of the argument. God has revealed himself to everybody. That's verses 19 and 20. God has revealed himself to everybody. Number two, people have responded to God's revealing himself by trying to suppress what they know to be true. Part one of the argument, all people know that there is a God who is powerful and divine. Argument number two, all mankind by nature tries to suppress that and pretend it's not true. And argument number three, therefore, our failure to honor God is inexcusable. It's our fault. We know there's a God who's worthy of being trusted and obeyed, but we in our wicked hearts have decided to push that truth aside so we can live our life our own way. And therefore, God is just to be angry with man. So that's the argument of 18, 19, and 20. God has made himself known to us. We have sought to suppress that knowledge and put it away from us so we can live like we want to live. We can't plead ignorance. Our failure to love and obey God is inexcusable. Let's take it one at a time. Number one, God has revealed himself to all people. Look at verses 19 and 20. See it there for yourself. Do you see it? For what can be known about God, that is, that which can be known about God without a Bible, without a preacher, simply by looking around and seeing there's a sky and there's a ground and there's stars and I have hands, and right? right? Just by looking with your senses, we, we see things and we know this had to come from somewhere. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, this isn't a wimpy God that did all of this, and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So every human being that has ever walked on planet Earth has perceived, just by looking at creation, two things, that there's a God who is powerful and that he is a God. He's divine. As far back as we go in human history, there has always been written into the fabric of the human heart this idea that there is such a thing as deity, as God. There's such a thing as a being that is, that is higher than man, a being that has power over us and is to be honored. The pagans of the ancient world believed in many different deities. And they all had some sort of power, right? One one controlled the wind, and one God controlled the water. Another controlled the sun, and another controlled the harvest and fertility and life. And these gods had the power to wield these things however they wanted to wield them. So if you wanted these gods to bless you, you needed to honor these gods. You needed to sacrifice to them, try and gain their favor. You needed to show them that you realized that, that they were more powerful than you, and so you had to plead with them to do what you wanted them to do. 
Throughout the centuries and even today in our modern times, there are still cultures that, that practice recognizing these deities and honoring them. But there is one deity, one God, that all human beings by nature resist recognizing. There's one God that all human beings by nature do not want to honor. And this is the one God, the only God that really matters because He's the only true God. Do you see those words clearly perceived? See them right there in the text? Clearly perceived. The Bible does not believe in atheists. It doesn't. It acknowledges that there are people who say they don't believe in God. Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Bible knows that there's such a thing as people who walk around calling themselves atheists, saying, I don't believe in God, but it says that deep down it's not true. All people have clearly perceived that there is a God. But they suppress that truth. They can deceive themselves into thinking they don't believe it. Now this, this knowledge of God in creation, right? Just this knowledge that there is a God, is sometimes called natural revelation. It means the way God reveals Himself just in the world around us. And sometimes Christians have a question about this, and that's this. Can someone be saved just by what they learn about God from looking at nature? Can I learn enough about God just from looking at the Grand Canyon or just from walking through the woods or studying the ocean? Can I learn enough about God there to be saved? And the answer is, in one sense, yes, but no. And let me explain. In looking at nature, you will see that this came from somewhere. There must be a God who made this, and therefore, if there's a God, He's worthy of my honor, because I'm not God. He made me. He gives me oxygen, right? I depend upon Him whether I like it or not, and so He's worthy of my honor. And, and so if, if I see that in nature, and I choose to honor that God perfectly, I choose to learn about all His commands and follow those commands perfectly, yes, I'll go to heaven. But let me ask you something. Has there ever been a person that did that? No. In fact, our hearts are prone just to the opposite. We don't want to learn the commands of God by nature. Now, all of this I'm talking about is before Christ changes us. You understand that, right? As Christians, this, is, this isn't us. But the, before we're Christians, this is who we are. We don't want to know this God. We don't want to know His commands. We don't want to honor Him. So can we be saved just by what we learn about God in nature? No. You can learn a lot by looking at the ocean or studying the stars, but you won't learn about His gift of grace given in Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message that you will not find by walking in the woods. The gospel is a message that must be heard or read. It must, must be preached. As Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So no one is saved just by learning about God in creation. They need special revelation. They need somebody to come and preach the gospel to them. 
People need the gospel. So, so part one of Paul's argument is that God has revealed himself to all people so that all people know that he exists and that he is strong. And deep down they all know that one day they will give an account to him. And yet, part two, man in his wickedness suppresses this truth. That's verse 18. Verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word suppress can mean to hold, to hold back, to hold fast, to hold down. Sometimes this word is used very positively. In Philippians 2.16, Paul talks about holding fast to the word of life. But here this word is used negatively. Man seeks to hold down the truth. We don't want to come to grips with it. Before we're saved, when thoughts start coming up about God and how we ought to, how we ought to obey Him and how we ought to trust Him, we, we try and get rid of it. It's like that, uh, what's the game where the, the things keep popping up and you keep trying to beat them down? Whack-a-mole. Right? It's like whack-a-mole. You, you have this inner sense that, that there is a God and I know I'm not living right and I know I ought not to be acting this way, but as soon as these thoughts come up, you're trying to whack them down. You want to suppress that truth. Because you don't want to give up how you're living. Notice Paul says that it's in our unrighteousness that we suppress the truth. It's an act of sin on our part. Our hearts and our minds and our wills resist the things of God. Now, for those of us in here who are Christians, we've been changed. This is who we were, but now God has come and changed our hearts. Now, by grace, we are learning to love God, to honor Him, to treasure Him, to trust and obey Him. No longer do we try and, and, and whack down those truths. We love those truths. They, they fill our hearts with joy. We don't resist God's commandments. We want to know God's commandments. We know that He is wiser than we are, and, and we know that He knows what is best for us. And so we go to our Bibles, and we, and we go to church, and we get around fellow Christians, and, and we want to learn everything we can about God because we know that, that His way is best, and we trust Him. But it's the very opposite of who we used to be. We didn't used to be like that. Many of us can remember how we used to be. How when other people would start talking about God or His commands, immediately we would get uncomfortable. We'd want to leave the room or change the conversation. Even this week, I got into a conversation with a fellow who... Um, he actually came to me, introduced himself to me. He knew I was a pastor here. We started talking and... The conversation came to going to church, and he said, well, I, I, we don't go to church. And I started talking to him about it, and uh, it was amazing how quickly the conversation ended, and he walked away. <laughs> he came to me, he wanted a friendly conversation, but as soon as the, the topic of what he ought to be doing came up, he, he got very uncomfortable, and he walked away. Suppressing the truth. Why does the natural human heart not want to recognize and honor God? Why does the natural human heart not like God? It all boils down to pride. We want to be our own gods. We want to believe that we're okay on our own, 
that we're self-sufficient and that our way is best. We want to believe that we can live however we want and have no one to answer to for it. If the God that we see in creation really exists, that's not true. And I don't want to face that. So I'm going to pretend that God I see in creation doesn't exist and live my life as if he doesn't exist. Why do we, what, what is it about God that, that our natural hearts before we're saved, why, why do we not like him? We don't like much of anything of him, to be honest. The Bible says that God is sovereign and in control. Well, we don't like that because that means we're not. Right? It means he can do with me whatever he chooses to do with me. It means he reigns and I must answer to him. I don't want to hear that. I really don't like his holiness because his holiness means that he's perfect and pure and good and I can't be in the presence of that because if, because if I get in the presence of his light, it's only going to show up all my darkness. Right? Remember Isaiah before the holy God? Woe is me! So I don't like his sovereignty and I don't like his holiness and I really don't like it when they're brought together so that he and his sovereignty has the right to cast me into hell and he's holy in doing so. So that I, I'm inexcusable. I, I, can't, I can't judge God and say this is unfair. I can't say you're impure. I can't say you shouldn't do this. No, he's both sovereign. He has the right to do it. And he's holy. He's perfect and good in doing it. Which just reveals the truth. That I am a wretched sinner who deserves this. My soul does not want to hear that. I do not like that God. I certainly don't like his omniscience. I, I don't like the fact that God knows everything. Again, I'm talking as an unbeliever, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't like the fact that he knows everything, because if God knows everything, he knows everything. He knows things about me that nobody else knows about me. He knows, he knows about those moments that nobody else knows about. He knows my thoughts. He knows about those secret sins. He knows about that time that I did that thing. And he saw it. And one day he will bring it to light. So I don't like his omniscience. And I don't like his unchangeableness. I mean, maybe if he was a God who could change, then, then there would be a day when he wouldn't be sovereign, or there would be a day when he wouldn't be holy, or there would be a day when he wouldn't be omniscient. But, but if he's unchangeable then not only is he all these things, but he's always going to be those things. Which means my situation is written in stone. Hear this, because this may sound strange. To an unbeliever, before God changes us, we even don't like the love and mercy of God. We may say we do, but we don't. You know why? Because the love and mercy of God means that I need it. Right? That I'm not okay on my own. That I'm not self-sufficient. That I don't have everything that I need. That I'm not God. Only being born again, changed by the gospel, can change us so that we begin to see clearly. When God comes to us and changes us, suddenly we love His sovereignty. We're so glad that He's in control. I don't want to be God. I'd make a lousy God. I'm so glad that He is God. 
I love His holiness. In fact, I want to be holy like Him. I love the fact that He's patient and good and kind and perfect and pure, and I want to be that kind of husband and father and preacher and friend. His holiness is His beauty. I love that. I didn't used to. I love the fact that He knows everything about me, even my darkest moments. Because knowing those darkest moments, He still gave His Son for me. It amazes me. Now that I'm a Christian, I, I, I love every aspect of who God is. I love the fact that He's unchangeable. It means He'll always keep His word. I love the fact that He, that he loves and that He is merciful and that He's full of grace. But that change in perspective, that change in my heart from having hostility towards God to embracing God and loving Him, that only happened when the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, changed fundamentally who I am in my inner being. And that's happened for many of you in this room, hasn't it? And you ought to be so thankful. Can you say with John Newton, I once was blind, but now I see? I would like to say I once was foolish. <laughs> but now, God is beginning to give me a little bit of wisdom to understand His glory. But, until God reaches in and changes a person's heart, the natural person hates God, the true God. And so, they suppress the truth about Him and instead try and fashion their own gods. That's what verses 21, 22, and 23 are about. <laughs> they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they made images made in the form of man and animals and creeping things. In other words, they said, I don't like this true God. This true God offends me. I'm going to make a God for myself that doesn't offend me. Today, there are many who attend Christian churches who do not want to believe in a sovereign, holy, all-knowing, unchangeable God. And so they suppress those truths and they, they reimagine a God that they want to worship. A God who is some big Santa Claus in the sky who's just there to give them what they need when they want it with no questions asked. They want to live however they want to live. There are times when they don't want God even in their lives because that'll make them feel uncomfortable while they're in this sin. So they just push Him out of their lives and, and they want to sin. And yet they want a God who, when they really need Him, they can call to Him and He comes and, and He's their servant. He's their lackey. right? God, I need you again. Come back. Here's what I need from you. All right, God, I've got what I need. Now I want to do these things and you don't like it, so get out of here. They have a, a pushover God. Friends, a pushover God is a false God because the true God holds us in His hands and we do not push Him around. He knows all, He rules all, He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Do you know the true God? Have you come to love Him? Well, that brings us to the final point. And it's spelled out very clearly at the end of verse 20. See it there at the end of verse 20? Very clearly. Child can understand it. Speaking of all humanity, Paul says, and so they are without excuse. They know God. 
They know he deserves to be trusted and honored, and they choose not to. Friends, God is good. He is good, he is good, he is good. Okay? We could sing it together, the old song, God is so good. We could sing it over and over again, God is good. It's our sin that wants to blind us to that. It's our sin that makes us want to think that it's us versus God and I'm the good guy and he's the bad guy. Before we are saved, sin has dominion over us. It clouds our thinking so that deep down in the recesses of my heart I think this is how I want to live. This is who I want to be and any God that wants to keep me from that must be a wicked God and I don't know that God anything. We're deceived. We think we're the good guy and he's the bad oppressor. This is probably a really bad illustration, but it just came to mind. There was this show on called Alias a few years ago. And uh, on this show, Alias, there's these folks who, uh, they think they're working for the CIA. And, uh, and as working for the CIA, they go on missions, and they recover stolen weapons, and they uh, go and they kill would-be assassins, and they believe they're working for the U.S. government and saving lives, and they're doing all this undercover work. But what we know is watching the show is this. They're all deceived. They're not really working for the CIA, but unbeknownst to them, they're working for a criminal terrorist organization. So when they think they're recovering stolen weapons, they're actually stealing the weapons. And when they think they're killing would-be assassins, they're killing the real CIA agents. They're the bad guys, and they don't even know it. Well, that's exactly the way that we think before we're saved. We, our pride is so self-centered that I think, I am good. Uh, it's typical Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil talk, right? All that is good is deep. Look into your heart, and you will find all that is good. Follow your heart. We're deceived. We're not good. God is good. And it is only those who are willing to hear that from the Bible and acknowledge it. That's right. Humble ourselves and turn to God and say, I'm not good. I need the gift of your son. Those are true Christians. Those are those who are saved. But... Until God comes and changes us, we suppress all of that. Church, believe the gospel and share the gospel. We live in a community of people who suppress the truth about God. We have the light, (laughs) right? We have the message that God uses to turn the lights on so that they see reality and change their ways and trust God. Do not hold that message to yourself. The moment we first believe, we are declared righteous before God. As we continue believing the gospel day after day, we are being made righteous in the presence of God. Ultimately, by holding on to the gospel, we will stand before God righteous. And all of it will be because of the grace given to us in the gospel as we cling every day to this truth. Jesus died for me. He is my Savior. I don't stand on my own righteousness. I have no righteousness. I stand on the righteousness of Christ alone. He is my hope. Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners. Love Him. 
proclaim Him, worship Him, love Him on Friday as you celebrate His birth, love Him and trust Him and be thankful for Him every day, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Does anyone have any questions about things?